Hello, and welcome to Introducing Me. I'm your host, Sarah. I started this podcast to get to know other people and lifestyles while discovering more about myself. Each episode, I'll give a new guest a chance to discuss their background, culture, interests, or whatever they want to talk about to help increase all of our own worldviews. Today, I would like to introduce you to Jeff Lee. He is a global traveler, ultra marathon runner. Uh, he's worked in state and federal government, lots of great things. And recently in the past year plus, he's become a great activist for the anti-Asian hate movement. So he's got some good stories, some unfortunate stories uh, to share as well. But I'm really grateful for him being here today. So Jeff, why don't you go ahead and tell us a little bit about yourself? Thanks so much for having me, Sarah. It's a pleasure to be here. Um, about me, right? I, I would love to tell you that I love nice walks on the beach and enjoy the color yellow. Um, but you know, usually when I talk about myself, I usually start with where I'm from and my family. And you know, my family were both people from Vietnam. They landed in California. I was born not too long after in 81, 82. And uh, I grew up as a little boy uh, dreaming of two things. One, uh, trying to be an astronaut. Uh, realized that would never happen since I have flat feet and terrible vision. And two, uh, wanting to be Asian president. Uh, you know, when I was 10 years old, I remember seeing a presidential debate and I was so excited and thought, oh my goodness gracious, I'm going to be, I should go into politics. Let's see what happens. And the first lesson in my life was, you know, my mother telling me, you know, uh, the Americans, which is funny since we're American, but the Americans, um, you know, they're never going to think you're American in that way. So it might be really hard for you. This is, you know, remember you're a 10 year old kid here, right? I say, no, what are you talking about? Right. Um, and so I say, no, I'm really committed. I want to go into the service, see how that goes. And, um, you know, unfortunately, one of the biggest challenges I want to share it sort of first out the bat, because I think it will highlight some of the challenges and interests I've had in my life. But, um, you know, I decided I was going to run for fifth grade class president. And, uh, you know, it's 35 kids. I figure I'd get 18 votes, right? And uh, I was canvassing for votes. And one of the boys was like, you know, um, you know, Jeff, uh, people aren't going to vote for you because, you know, people here think you eat dog. I was like, what? I have a pet dog. Why would I eat a dog? It was just so crazy to hear. I've never heard that before. And after lunch, you know, after playing basketball with my buddies, came back and at my desk, there was a picture of a drawing of me eating a dog. And I was just crushed. I've never felt that before, but um, it's amazing what you learn. And it teaches you a really interesting thing about right and wrong, but also the case later on in life. And you think, wait, that doesn't just happen. People learn that, right? Um, and even though my goal to be an astronaut didn't work out, even though I didn't get to be Asian president, um, I was pretty committed to a world of adventure and exploration. And so I would break my, really my interest in life into three professional categories. And we can talk about ultra running after, but you know, the first was, you know, I realized it wasn't really space that I was interested in. I was interested in learning something new about something or someone. I was sort of a natural people watcher, uh, I'd admit I'm pretty shy. I know, I know it doesn't always come off, but I'm naturally pretty shy. So I definitely prefer to observe from afar. But I realized if you want to see the world, you have to actually just go. And so I was blessed to have had opportunities at the State Department. I was lucky to have been a speechwriter overseas in Europe and in New York. Um, you know, I, was, uh, I had a tough assignment later on to work in Afghanistan for over two years, uh, serving you know, international forces, but also supporting human rights work later at a nonprofit. Um, and that work was fascinating for my parents because they had spent their entire life trying to escape poverty and hardship. And they were like, why are you going to these places? You know, we came here so you didn't have to deal with that. Um, but I was naturally pretty stubborn. And then the second chapter of life was sort of this interest in politics, right? Like I mentioned. And one of my first real political job was working for President Carter uh, at the Carter Center in Atlanta. Um, that was a compromise with my parents because my parents, after landing in California years later, moved to Southern Georgia, where they still run a free range organic chicken farm. And my mother, totally Asian mom, guilted me <laughs> that I never spent time with them, which was true because, you know, family is always better from afar, in my view. Um, and they made me a deal that if I could find something for a few months, I should, and then we'll see if it works out. And I ended up working for President Carter, um, you know, as a speechwriter and a researcher for him. And then before that, 
um, following on working for two members of Congress as a national security advisor, uh, working on democracy work overseas, and then got like a really interesting break uh, and ended up going back to my home state of California to serve Governor Jerry Brown of California, leading cabinet issues, which you know, as my mother as my mother uh, mentioned to me after I told her I was going to work on cabinet issues, she said, "You're not a carpenter. Like, what do you know about drawers?" <laughs> and uh, you know, you got to understand, my parents are you know they're they're rice farmers before their farm was taken away, and now they're chicken farmers. And so, you know, that the experience of of working for a political principal and a public servant just it, it's a very different world, right? Um, you know that their son, um, you know, could be advising a governor for the largest state in the union, right? 40, you know, 40 million people in California, the fifth largest economy in the world. You know, you know it for Napa, you know it for Hollywood, you know it for, uh, you know, the really cool skiing and snowboarding or surfing. Um, it also has one of the most interesting sort of ecosystems. And I'm sure, I'm sure you've seen the news on climate issues and fires, all the not so good things, all the mass shootings, unfortunately, cybersecurity attacks, disaster response. I got to do with all of that, uh, you know, serving veterans, working with military installations, and also sort of advising on international affairs for him because, you know, California, you know, has these interesting trade relationships with China and Canada and Mexico and Japan. So whenever a head of state from these countries come to Washington, where I am now, they then go to California, which is just a fascinating thing. And then after working on these issues, as well as privacy and other sort of innovation technology issues for him, um, I went into the private sector. I went to work uh, at a company called VMware, which uh, at the time was Dell Technologies cloud computing side. So working on politics and policies across 50 states in Canada. And then now I'm at a fintech startup called Rhino. And what Rhino is trying to do is provide options to renters, the 110 million renters in the U.S., and say, hey, instead of a security deposit, why don't you, um, you know, have different upfront costs and why don't you pay a premium um, of $20 instead of $2,000? And if you're able to pay your rent on time and you don't leave a giant hole in the wall, you can actually keep your money. And that's a very different concept than handing $2,000 to somebody especially when there's a first month's rent, last month's rent, um, you know, a pet fee, amenity fee, application fee. Um, 40% of Americans have less than $450 of savings. And we have a massive eviction crisis coming. And, you know, you can see up to about 3.6 million Americans in the next four or five months are going to face eviction. And we need more solutions. So, Housing policy is so complicated and hard. I've loved that I get the chance to work on it, but golly, it keeps me up at night. You know, when I think of millions of, you know, think about all the Americans that rely on stable housing, right? Think about, um, you know, veterans coming back from service. Think about, um, you know, families that have been, have had their economies affected by the disruption of COVID-19, but also think about, you know, a young professional just starting their career, right? Think about um, a family that's had some hardship at home and, you know, maybe the, the relationship hasn't worked out and, and someone needs to leave because it's a dangerous situation. Um, you know, think about um, civic organizations and social justice groups that have members that really care. Think about someone who's just starting their career in labor as an apprentice, what kind of money they have. So I want to try to provide more options to people, similar to healthcare, right? When you start a job, you have all these healthcare options and then you, you know, you weigh the pros and cons and you're a grown up and you pick one. But in the security deposit space, you have two options. It's pay all of this stuff or you don't and you don't get to live there. And so that's why for me, just looking at it, you know, it's, it's one part of the solution set, right? There's certainly so many things to do. How we improve affordable housing? How do we reform zoning? How do we ensure that you have, um, you know, rights to counsel and, um, you know, people are supported in the event that they are asked to be evicted, that they have representation? You know, these things are important, right? Um, so those are sort of some of the professional things. And somewhere along the line, along the way, you know, I got into ultra marathon running. Uh, it wasn't always that because, you know, actually, thir actually almost 13 years ago, um, I wasn't running at all. In fact, I was, you know, almost 300 pounds. And um, the only, <laughs> my friends used to joke that I only run for, for pizza and chicken wings, which was true. <laughs> I would also say if the police were chasing me, I'd running too. Um, but you know, I had this horrible month. I had this situation. I had a you know terrible breakup. I had uh, you know a close family friend get into a car accident. My godfather passed away from cancer, 
And um, I really was in this place where I just was losing hope. And um, my godfather, you know, before he died, he had two regrets. He said, one, um, he never asked out his high school sweetheart. And he said, you know, Jeff, um, you know, life's too short. So if you like someone, just ask them out, which again, being shy, it's sort of an interesting prospect. And then the second piece um, was that he never ran a marathon under four hours. And um, I decided that when he passed, I was going to raise money for cancer. And I was going to secretly try to run a marathon under four hours, which is shocking because, again, I the furthest I'd run is a block to the other side, again, to, you know, hail the hot dog guy. Um, and I just, I took six months and I like completely just focused. And um, one of the things that I'm most proud of and least proud of is I remember signing up for the gym for the first time. This is April of 2008. And um, I got in the you know gym. I see someone next to, you know, on the treadmill. I start talking to her, which I don't know etiquette. I didn't even know that's not okay. But I was talking to her. And I go start running. You know, I'm just asking how she's doing. You know, I'm trying to be friendly. And about five minutes in, I saw stars. I got really dizzy and I threw up all over her shoes. Every ounce of projectile, anything just landed everywhere. And I was so embarrassed and just ashamed. And I was like, my life is really tough. I need to, I need to turn this around. And I remember the next day I went back, same place, same treadmill, same time. There were seven treadmills. I went on the middle one. All the other ones are full. But when I got there, the three on my left and three on my left saw me. All the people running and they stopped and they all left because they saw, you know, they saw this guy, you know, blow chunks earlier. And uh, I ran for about six minutes and th didn't throw up and that was a victory. And then it was 5K races and 10K races and half marathon races. And then, um, you know, before I knew it, I was down 130 pounds, right? I was, um, I was flying. I was running really well. I didn't tell anybody. I was really doing this. I, I just sent this cryptic email about I was raising money for cancer. You know, you should give money. I ended up raising about $25,000. And um, I flew my mother up. And my mom, you know, when you're the fat kid your whole life, you know, your mom kind of treats you a certain way. I remember going to pick her up at the airport. And she shows up and she keeps walking right by me and walking by me. And she just, she's like, where are you? She calls me. She's like, where are you? I was like, I'm in front of you. And she comes up because I looked a little different by that point. And she looks at me and she says, you know, I know you're my son, but you don't look like him. But it's good to know you're still the same inside. And that was such a, I don't know, that was the first time where I really felt like I could conquer something. You know, I had seen the world, but it was at a cost. I obviously wasn't taking care of myself. I could go into these crazy work situations, but I obviously wasn't taking care of myself. I was obviously blessed to have these amazing friends, but I wasn't investing in myself was giving away too much and i ended up running that marathon in less than four hours and then a year later qualified for the boston marathon and then you know went to afghanistan came back ran the boston marathon and then something happened and at mile three of the race i tear my meniscus and this is just it's sharp pain and uh, i go to the tent this is boston right like this is the race of races and the um the the doctors you know the the doctor folks were like hey listen um you clearly have a knee issue. Um, you can still run on it though, but it's gonna be really uncomfortable. And I was like, okay. And I remember running the 23 miles on a bad knee, basically finished, didn't run the time I wanted, as you can imagine, had surgery without a year. And I sort of lost the speed I got. So then I was like, well, maybe if I can't run faster, I should run farther. And so that's when I got interested in the 50 mile and then the 100K. And then was able to run 400 mile races, uh, you know, in the Georgia woods and the Arizona desert and the Wisconsin woods. And uh, I realized that, you know, if you really put your heart and soul into things, it was anything really was possible. But you really didn't need the right support network. And that was one of the lessons I learned in my life. And so what I would do, this was my superpowers here, was that before every race, I would write a name with a number. And the name was the person and the number was the mile. And originally when I started doing it, it was because people were giving me money for cancer and <laughs> cancer money, right? Cancer research. And I would send them a thank you and say, this is your mile. You have mile 20 or mile 15. But what I did later was I'd use the mile and think about that person at the mile. Because the idea was that you're never alone, even though you're on the course by yourself. And in the 100 mile race, you have 30 hours generally finish, and you're all by yourself and you want to know 
golly, what's happening here? And you can imagine during these races, which you're running through the night, there are some times where you don't think you're going to do it. You think you're going to give up. And so you, what I would do is I would tell my friends the race day, hey, you have these miles. If I'm struggling at your mile, I will call you. And I expect you to tell me a very distracting story. I want you to tell me some nasty, nasty stuff about yourself, things you wouldn't tell your mother or anybody or your partner. I want you to share some good goss, right? Good gossip. And that's how I finished those races. Honestly, every time it was like a phone a friend, you know, I would call and be like, tell me a dirty story, please. Mile 80 and I'm hurting badly. I'm, it's over 100 degrees in the desert, you know, or whatever. And I'd finish. And so if there's a will, there's a way, but you need to find the way and the will to make it work, right? And that has been the case too um, in recent times with Asian hate. And I'll just tell you, when you're in politics, the last thing you want to do is raise attention and awareness. You just kind of want to do the work, right? Um, but sometimes it, it finds you. Um, you know, in March of last year, so just before the pandemic really unbuckles the country, I was traveling for work, suit and tie. It's coming out of Nevada, flying back to San Francisco. And I'm going through custom, I'm going through the checkpoint and security. And this woman comes up to me, kind of unprovoked. And she looks at me and she just hawks this giant loogie in my face. It's just dripping down. And I remember looking around. There's about a dozen people. They see it. And my natural instinct, because I'm Asian, is to blend in quickly. Hide it. Don't let it bother you. And I remember telling a joke. I remember saying, gosh, you know, if I knew it was going to rain, I would have brought my umbrella. That was my first reaction, right? And she's like, go back to where you come from. She doesn't mean California, by the way. She means somewhere in Asia. And uh, I've been spit on before, actually. But the hard part, Sarah, was looking around and realizing those dozen people didn't care. Not their problem. They already, it already never happened to them. Already never happened. And that was when I realized that if good people don't do something, then bad things happen and people allow for it to happen. And that um, someone like me, working for some tech company who's basically, you know, had this life that was blessed to represent some parts of the American dream, right? To have family that are chicken farmers and to have their son in these, as their friends say, shiny office jobs, <laughs> someone with a shiny office job uh, with no real skills. Um, but I was treated to nothing, right? I was reduced to nothing. My um, standing was conditional. It was arbitrary. And I felt meaningless. And that's when I was like, okay, I need to talk about these issues. I need to talk about what it's like to be Asian American in the country. Um, and the real tipping point uh, later in the year, you know, my parents were uh, built a community for 20 years in Southern Georgia, you know, pretty rural community, very real America, right? Uh, you know, there's a couple stoplights, there's a couple churches, there's a lot of gun stores, right? It's sort of what you picture, but like the kindest people and like very thoughtful and salt of the earth. And, you know, there were people that spent time with my parents and did business with my parents and really got to know them. And you, I don't know if you recall, but a couple of weeks after I got spit on, there were three epicenters for the virus. One was in Italy, one was in New York City, and one was in Southern Georgia. Um, five counties down there got completely slammed as a result of the virus breaking out at a funeral. And that was about 20 minutes down the road from my parents. And so it became pretty clear as time went on that their friends down there weren't really wanting to spend time with them. And later, eventually, one of them was like, you know, um, you're the reason why the virus is here. We can't spend time with you. And, you know, when your parents, when you talk on the phone with your parents and they try to pretend like something doesn't bother them, it's like really interesting. But like to hear that sort of trembling, because even though they told me, right, when I was 10 years old that I wasn't going to be American, I think they secretly were hoping they could be too, right? Like that they were wrong. They were hoping they'd be wrong. And you could hear the fact that they realized that they were right. And that was no matter what they did, they were never going to be accepted. 
that was really hard. And that's when I decided to write my first piece, which is why I'm so glad we're talking now. I ended up writing this piece in the local paper about, um, you know, the contributions of immigrants during COVID-19, right? So there are three areas. One is the importance of small business. You know, so many immigrants contribute to small business, right? Two, uh, rural hospitals. Many parts of real America, as I like to say, many of the doctors, pediatricians, nurses are immigrants, especially in underserved areas where like my parents are from. And three, the people who were involved in the research and development of the vaccines that we benefit from came from immigrants. So there's a pretty clear nexus here between immigrants and making a difference. So I write this little piece. I never read anything for public consumption my entire life, not one thing. You know, again, my goal when you're in government and politics is to hide from the press. Here I am trying to write a thing. So I, I write this opinion piece in like the local paper, the Albany Herald. And two things happened. Number one is even though it was a publication that had a circulation of 30,000, you know, it was read by about 100,000 people. That's probably not normal for a local paper in Southern Georgia. And two, the neighbors read it. The community read it. Their friends read it. And they apologized to my parents. And that was when I realized that what you say does matter and it has a power to it. Especially if you speak with evidence and passion and a dedication for others, right? So that's me. So that's my introducing me to you. So I'm sorry I talked so long, but I just thought it was important to highlight the things that mattered to me and the things that make me me today. Yeah, yeah. And um, when we were talking a little beforehand and, and we were connecting, it was like, there are so many things you can talk about. Um, and I think all of those stories are are so important, really. And, you know, talking about who you are. Um, so I definitely want to ask a lot of questions about the different things. Um, but I'm going to start with the unconventional and ask about the ultra marathon running. Yeah. Um, because when I had Googled it beforehand, like, what does this actually mean? And it was literally just anything over a marathon. And then you yeah. start fitting out these long milestones. Um, are these races like super, super popular? And are you doing them very often? Yeah. Um, so the popularity of ultra marathons has grown dramatically, largely because of a growing group of people that are in a midlife crisis, I'd say, <laughs> um, if I had to be honest. Also largely because people are also wondering the same thing that I was, Sarah. Can you run further? Mm -hmm. Because at some point you realize you can't run faster. Like there's just a moment when you realize like you've topped out. So then the the question is more, how far can you go? And then it's no longer about talent. Like the cool part of ultra running is it's no longer about talent. You can line up 10 people with 10 different resumes, with 10 different life experiences and 10 different body types. You would have no idea who's going to finish in front of somebody else in the race. Because the one thing, the universal equalizer in these longer distances is everyone feels crummy. At some point. And the question is, will you bounce back from the darkness, right? Can you get out of the pain cave? Can you find a will? Can you find really what matters to you? Because the farther you go, it strips you down and down and down. I remember when I was ever on the phone with my friends in these races, I was crying every time. There's nothing you can do because you're so stripped down to like your core. There's no filter. There's no concern about judgment. You're just you. And I love that part about it. As somebody who is sort of, I felt like I had a life that was a little more Cinderella, you know, than anything, that um, there were so many instances where I realized that maybe I was crashing the ball that people didn't think I deserved to be there. And gosh, like that was such a powerful thing to be part of a community that loved embracing the adventure of what's possible. So much so that they don't even know what's possible. That's incredible. So the popularity has gone up significantly. Um, the race I'd reference to the audience here, the most famous ultramarathon is the Western States 100-mile race. It's the oldest ultramarathon in the U.S. Uh, it starts from Squaw Valley, uh, Northern California, which is where the Olympic Games were, the Winter Games up there in the Tahoe area. And it finishes in this town in just north of Sacramento, called town called Auburn. And it's 100 miles, and it is through these canyons and trails and it just has this historic wonder and the best part about that race sarah is the last mile is like heading toward the high school and then you finish on this track at the high school and everyone's there's watching and 
I swear, if you ever want to Google something to like find, give yourself inspiration in the world, don't look at who wins the race. Look at the last runner. That is the best. It's they call it the golden hour, the last hour of the race. 29 hours going to 30. And you just see the look on their face when they realize they're gonna finish. This is 2956 or 2958, 2959 even. And everyone's just going crazy, including the winners of the race. They're there waiting. Because the winners of the race finished in like 14, 15 hours. Okay. I think about that. 14, 15 hours. And everyone's cheering the loser. The, the, the last place finisher is as revered, if not more, than the winner. That is almost double the time. It's such a supportive community. It really is. And there's a huge proliferation. And, and again, like, don't get me wrong, like marathon running and, and road running is very popular, of course, in the U.S. Understandably so. The New York City Marathon, there's nothing like it. Nothing like New York City Marathon. Boston Marathon, nothing like Boston Marathon. Chicago Marathon, pretty magical. But I'll tell you, when you're running these longer races with like 300 people or 200 people, there's a camaraderie that feels like you're the world. Yeah. Yeah, that's truly fascinating and uh, something I would probably never do, but that's okay. <laughs> well, you know, Sarah, I would tell you, you only live once unless you're Buddhist or Hindu. And you got to remember, I was a 290-pound person. I didn't think I was doing that either, right? If you told me, you know, 10 years later, I want to finish four of them, I would have told you to, you know, go get me a burger. <laughs> that's what I would tell you, right? So you, you never know. You just never know. Like, I mean, I never thought I would be somebody speaking on Asian issues, you know? I never thought I'd be someone that was going to travel 85 countries. I never thought I was going to be somebody who would advise a governor of consequence, right? Life just has a way of moving and you kind of hop on the train and see what happens. But having that open mind and open heart is so important to help you realize, again, what's possible? Pretty much anything. Right. So talking about the Asian hate movement, how you've been advocating against, obviously, the hate, um, you know, it was great to hear that your parents' neighbors actually like apologized after reading your opinion piece and you've written more as well. So can you talk a little bit about what you've been sharing and what the impact has been? Yeah. I mean, um, yeah, when I, when I realized that people still read stuff, it was like such a bizarre thing. And yeah, I mean, I just found, I found inspiration kind of like how I found ultra running and marathon running, right? Like there was this moment where I felt like I needed to turn my life around. But in this instance, it was like, I needed to say what I need to say because it's so important. I, I hadn't felt that way in a very long time, to be honest. And some of it is fatherhood. Like, I think it gives you sort of some new superpowers, right? You sort of put things in perspective that it isn't just about you. It's about, and it's not just about you or me or many of the audience. It's about the next generation too. And you want to try to leave the world in a better place. And, you know, my kid is Asian, no surprise. And I don't want her being spit on in an airport. I don't want her, you know, being told, um, you know, you know, can I get a happy ending? I don't want her to be told that, you know, in the workplace that she's too loud and too quiet and, you know, not analytical enough and not using her gut enough or whatever, right, terminology we use to discriminate against women. I don't want that. And, you know, so much of the case was there's so much to talk about. Uh, especially, you know, not just in Asian American Pacific Islander issues, but talking about how our country can be doing a better job supporting the most vulnerable, the most vul- the most marginalized, the most historically disenfranchised, right? And I and I focused that on my works because I had worked on all these policy issues, so I was like, I should give concrete recommendations. And, you know, do it in places that might matter, like in Georgia and Pennsylvania and in California and in Florida, which, you know, those states, well, three of those four states are pretty politically interesting, right? Those are key battleground states, you being in Pennsylvania, you know, there's an opportunity to like start that conversation. I always kind of thought we in public policy, we in politics need to go to where people are and the politicians and policymakers in Washington do a great job of avoiding people. And we need to bring messages to people's backyards and their front yards and their local stores. Just like when they were all reading that piece in my parents' hometown, 
right? Like they could access something that they connected with that was local and mattered to them from somebody that they had seen grow up over the years. You know, there was a sense of connection that was very important and very honest. And that even though we don't agree on everything, they agreed enough to take the time to read it. Right. Um, and so for me, being able to talk about rural communities or veterans or women or, you know, families struggling with childcare, talking about seniors, right, who've really struggled during COVID-19 and mental wellness. That was just something I just love talking about. And I went from writing one to, you know, um, just in early August, writing my 40th. So in almost one year, 40 pieces, right? I never, ever, ever thought that would have been something I thought about, right? But again, anything is really possible if you feel that inspiration. And how, so how it affected people. Uh, I'd say three things. One, um, I know for a fact that decision makers read it because I get notes from them. That's very important, right? I have three audiences, right, within that. So policymakers read it and they find it that helpful that it's concrete, right? Because usually most political news you read is generally ranting and shaking your fist and then like not offering anything of substance. I find that just obscene. But I wanted to write something that was like honest and thoughtful and well-researched generally. And I think you find that in my pieces. Most of the time we're, I'm telling a story, but I'm giving very honest facts things that you can't look away from, right? So that, you know, that second part of that audience, um, you know, is other um, communities of color, actually, who don't really know where Asian Americans and Pacific Islanders fit in some ways, partly because of the model minority lie that we're ta we talk about, which is basically this premise that Asians are the best minorities, which we can talk about that a little more, but it's absolutely ridiculous. The third... Um, audience is really you know yes white people but also like really asians because i do have asian friends during throughout all this that were convinced that they were white enough they were just convinced of it that they were just focused on three things they were focused on their kids school paying the mortgage and moving up the professional ladder so number one like big picture it connected to a lot of types a lot of different types of people I know that because I get messages in good ways and I get hate mail. <laughs> and I'm told that when you get hate mail, it's good. Um, some of the things I would never repeat to my mother, but they were, you know, at least people who were reading as I was told by others. Uh, the second thing of how sort of it mattered um, was it provided me um, an opportunity from a representation perspective. There were some papers I wrote in when I asked them privately. When was the last time another Asian had written for them? It had been months, months so these were spaces that people didn't feel comfortable walking into because they could they didn't know how to or they didn't you know feel comfortable or didn't have the expertise they thought they needed right like that is just a very powerful thing and and when you read stories I look at the bylines out all the time because obviously whose perspective it is is going to shape the story and as important whose opinion it is is going to be shaped on their life experience and um, and I remember watching a Meet the Press, you know, one of these Sunday shows, and it was just after the horrible, tragic murders of women of Asian descent at these small businesses um, in Georgia and Atlanta. You know, in March, multiple Asian women were murdered by this lone gunman, you know, who had some sex, um, you know, addiction, apparently, right? I mean, in my view, I view it as a hate crime. But um, I remember watching Meet the Press, Sarah, and they were having a segment on Asian hate and there was not a single Asian person in that segment. It was all white people and one person of color, but you would think it'd be really interesting to have a conversation with, I don't know, an Asian American woman who was clearly targeted, these who were clearly targeted, clearly discriminated against, had way worse than I ever will. And they weren't even thought about that. That's the second thing I'd say. It was really notable. Third part, which I think is really important to highlight, um, was this, what I found was what I called the halo effect. And it was similar to my running, and this is why the parallel between my writing and running is really similar, is I found when I was running, other people would be running. People felt like they could do it too. And when I started writing, I had tons of messages from complete strangers asking me about what I thought about their drafts. You know, I ended up you know, in total, getting about 400 
messages, complete strangers sending me drafts of documents, right? From all across America and the world. Because they felt like they could be a part of our conversation. That's pretty cool, you know? And even in the, the big piece that we were talking about earlier, the one in April that landed in Politico that talked about my experience in politics being Asian and the challenges with that, you know, that, that piece, you know, I ended up getting thousands and thousands of messages from people. Um, so in many ways, the more I explored myself, the more I could kind of become who I was always meant to be. I finally felt like I could be my whole self, right? Rather than burying myself in someone who tells a joke at an airport after you get spit on, you know, I can finally be me. And then that finally being me part has this halo effect too, that it encouraged other people that they should start to embrace who their full selves are. That was, these things were totally unexpected from a bad travel day. Never thought that would happen. And now we get to talk about, you know, how we can make a difference in the world. Like one person, you know, maybe can help shake something, but more importantly, one person can remind somebody that maybe anything really is possible, you know, beyond just one mile here, right? Beyond one opinion to something much more meaningful. Yeah. So you said, um, you know, there's kind of this wrong opinion of that, um, Asians are the best minorities. <laughs> yes. That's what I'm told. <laughs> yes. Number one. <laughs> so uh, can you talk a little bit about yeah. that and, and what the best way is to show why that that statement shouldn't be said? Yeah. I'm, I'd love to talk about that. So um, there's this lie that gets sent around that basically says like, Asians are the best minorities and every other minority should be like them. Right. Um and this actually fits into one one important part, and we can talk about the second. But the first is that you know Asian Americans and Pacific Islanders about about six seven percent of the country. Okay, but it's the fastest growing group. It has about fifty nationalities, you know, or fifty you know pe- you know fifty different nations, you know, represented with a hundred different languages, ethnicities. So it's pretty. It's more of a buffet of different people, right? From a lot of sorts of histories and legacies, and as you can imagine. And these folks come from many different chapters of the American story, right? So for on one end, you have Chinese and Japanese Americans who've been here since the mid-19th century, right? Building the railroads and coming over. Um, and on the other extreme, you have folks like my parents who came over after the Vietnam War and landed in 1981. I mean, yeah, they're from the same continent, right? But their experiences are so different. And the reason why I highlight Chinese Japanese for two reasons, you know, two reasons. One is um, these are folks that have been discriminated against for a very long time. So the Asian hate thing is not a new thing. Uh, and if you look at the history, right, the Chinese Exclusion Act, you look at, you know, Japanese being interned during World War II. Do you recall Germans and Germans and Italian Americans being interned? Because I don't, right? So it's pretty just very distinct. Like that acts, those acts of, discrimination have been there. The second thing is that one aspect that Asians tend to have is this feeling like they're foreign, but they're not from here. And yes, technically not from there because everyone's from everywhere, right? But there are Chinese and Japanese Americans that have been in the United States longer than most European Americans. So like, think about, you know, the Irish came over after the famine, right? When was that? That was, right? I mean, that was well after 1850s. <laughs> so it's a fascinating thing that they're not considered the other, right? Now, some aspects of European Americans were considered others then, of course. But when we look at this more Western history, we sort of say, no, they're, they're one of us versus no, not these Asian folks, right? So framing that, it's important to highlight that you have groups with completely different legacies, histories, cultures, languages, experiences. And that's important, especially when you look at data. Problem is the data right now that we have in the US puts everybody together. And it's important to put everyone together for understanding sheer numbers, but it negates the story, which is this, which is there are some Asian Americans that yes, have high graduation rates from college and have higher incomes, and yes, have higher standards of living. But when you think of 
Samoan Americans or Nepalese Americans or Vietnamese Americans, they make well less than that, right? Let's say for many, like 60 cents to the dollar, for example, 54 cents to the dollar for some of these groups versus some of the other groups. If you combine it, it's 85 cents to the dollar. But 60 cents and 54 cents is more representative to maybe other groups you describe as traditionally marginalized or having a history of, you know, being discriminated against. But these groups also, if you look at the data group by group, have lower high school, college graduation rates, have lower healthcare um, access, who have more comorbidities, who have more experiences in the criminal justice system, and who have a lower life expectancy. And these numbers are on par or worse than other groups that you picture. So this notion that like one group is the best group is just silly <laughs> when actually all of these peoples of color have been totally hosed. Second piece related. So why does that matter? Why does it matter that this lie is talked about? It's because the lie is also used as a wedge. And it's used to tell other groups that whatever they did, they weren't working hard enough and you should blame this group, that you should look at this group. And it causes conflict, divide and conquer. And the winner of that is the perpetuation of white supremacy. That's an issue. And if you look at America today, and if you looked at America last year, it's very clearly the case, you know, especially after George Floyd's murder and countless others. And there's two roads you have. You can be anti-racist or the other thing. And Asian Americans and Pacific Islanders are having more attention put to them than they ever thought. You know, I, my black friends and I, we talk about these issues and, um, you know, whenever a horrible thing happens in the community, they get bombarded from their white friends saying, oh my gosh, I'm so sorry. It's horrible. <laughs> and, uh, yeah, it's exhausting for them. But when Asian stuff happens, people get messages and we're just surprised. We're like, you thought of us? <laughs> it's a very different mindset, but also it's an opportunity to educate, right? That, you know, Hey, you know, during this time, right. 80% of Asian Americans feel like they've been discriminated against. Right. Or that, you know, in, you know, they're the least represented in executive roles in companies or organizations, or they're the least likely to make partner at the law firm. This is at the same time when you're like, you're successful, you're great, busy bee working in tech. By the way, you don't have leadership skills. You don't have, you don't have um, leadership presence. I've heard that a few times. And it's partly because I just, there are many of us that don't look like central casting to what certain people think of. But we're quote unquote successful. So if we're so successful, why are there so few people at the top? Despite the fact that let's say there are higher numbers in the mid-level or the junior levels, <laughs> right? I would say there's clearly what we call bamboo ceiling to that. That you're only good, you're only as good or as worthy until certain people tell you you're not. Again, you go from being a professional who works in tech, traveling for business meeting to being spit on and not existing to fellow Americans, fellow peers, right? Just like that. Right. So what has your experience been like traveling to 85 different countries as an Asian American? Um, weird. <laughs> I'd say sometimes weird. Um, you know, it's funny. Americans have a certain way of vibing, right? And people, I think most people from the host country who would meet me would think, okay, this person's from Asia. Until I start talking or until I start smiling, they're, no, no, you're clearly American. So they see the American traits, which naturally Americans are kind of optimists. They're naturally positive. They're naturally quite friendly. Uh, they, they have a certain walk, right? They walk with a lot of purpose. Those things are very apparent regardless of how your face looks. And, you know, seeing the world taught me two things. One, um, so many parts of the world have these different treasures that you appreciate, right? And you can find something really special in all the places you can go to around the world, whether it's in Sub-Saharan Africa or Latin America or the former Soviet Union or in Asia. Pretty amazing. The second thing, which I think will be notable here, and this is, I think ties into what we've been talking about, is in every country I went to, the people who had less always gave more. 
That seems to be one of those universal truths. And when you think about that, and you think about sort of the beauty of a place, it then makes you reflect about the beauty of home. And every time I traveled, whenever I came back to the States, regardless of how much fun I had, I really missed home. Like America's home for me, right? This is all I know. And so whenever I land, I had a new appreciation for this country, despite its imperfections, right? It's still, it's still the place where dreams come true, right? Like, you know, the American dream, right, Sarah, isn't my parents' success. The American dream is the opportunity for their children to have a shot at doing things of anything they want, any choosing they have, any desires they want to fulfill. That's the American dream. It sucks for my parents because they didn't get to do that cool stuff, right? They had to work 18-hour days. It sucked. Manual labor. I'm so grateful because I got to, again, I get to see the world and I got to know my boundaries and break those boundaries and limits. And I get to be able to talk about public policy issues with you, right? It's what a treasure. That's the American dream. And the opportunity to, to really invest in this country is so important, especially when it's not perfect, when it's far from perfect. It can still be a dream with a couple of nightmares here and there, though. Yeah. So before we start to wrap things up, is there anything else that you would like to share with the audience that you haven't gotten a chance to mention? Yes. Um, you know, I get a lot of questions about what everyday folks should do about Asian hate, right? Um, I'd say there's three things that every listener here should be doing. Number one, learn the history. And I always tell everybody to watch the PBS special on Asian Americans. Excellent, excellent, excellent. Highly recommend for you. Um, you'll learn a lot of things. I learned a ton. You can read an Asian American Pacific Islander author, uh, you know, Viet Thanh Nguyen, Kathy Park Hong, Charles Yu, Ocean Vung. Great examples. Amazing work. If you want to hear like the, the Asian American story, it's pretty powerful. So learning the history is like pretty cool. The second thing is asking your friend about their life experience or their history. And it doesn't have to be someone who's Asian, but, you know, somebody who has a story that you've never heard. You'd be surprised what you learn. And there's so much more commonality in story than difference, I found. And that's like that, that reminds you that we're all human. Again, we're all from somewhere else, but somehow we're all here. Right. And the third thing is if you really want to make a difference in anti-racism, one of the most important things is you need to know what to do when you see something like that happen, right? When you see someone like me getting spit on the airport, when you see um, senior women that are getting beaten up randomly on the street, right? And people are watching. I'm sure you saw videos of that. You need to be an active ally. Co-conspirator is a better word. But bystander trading is huge. And so Asian Americans Advancing Justice, um, Hollaback, another organization do amazing things in the you know training space. Everyone should go through it. If you really want to be a real champion for these issues and for these communities that are under significant duress, right? At a time where they're not just worried about the virus, they're worried about being murdered, right? But when the virus is the second thing you're worried about, that's bad. That's what I would say, right? So there's a couple things you could do. Lastly, I'll say small businesses in this country have been hammered throughout this. And thankfully, the government stepped in to sort of try to provide some services, some loans, some, you know, funding. But Asian American Pacific Islander businesses, when they were starting to reopen, got hit with significant vandalism. So if you can vote with your feet, go support a small business, right? Whether it's a restaurant or the laundromat or whatever, you'd be surprised how much that could make a huge difference. And that's something that, hey, you need to eat. <laughs> you need to get your stuff washed. So you might as well go to a place that's being affected because... Again, as this country starts to open up when it can post-Delta, um, discrimination in these issues will continue to be here. So even if the virus is beaten, I don't think these issues against the community will be anytime soon. So there's a couple of things that, you know, every listener here should think about what they can do and being an amazing ally champion and frankly, a, a citizen of the world. It's a great opportunity to make a difference. Time's now. Definitely. And I will leave um, that information that you just shared in the description of this episode for people to be able to find the various authors, training and information like that. It could be right at their fingertips. 
Now, at the end of every episode, I always ask my guests a random question that mm-hmm. doesn't have to do with anything we've talked about. Whoa. So you did mention that you have a daughter. So yeah. my question is, is what is the best thing about having a small child? The best thing about having a small child is, the, well, there's two things. One is her constant sense of wonder. I remember when she was really small and she experienced wind for the first time hitting her face and she just was completely confused. She's like, what's hitting my face? I can't see it. And that's just, I just laughed my total tail off when I heard that. And the second thing is just how quickly they learn. The ability to learn new things is constant. It's a great reminder to me that as humans, we have an incredible gift and a power to learn by doing, learn by experiencing, and learn from learning. Pretty cool. So that's the coolest part about being a, you know, having having a having a kid. It's it is a wild ride. Golly. It also teaches you how not to realize that you don't control anything. <laughs> so that's important too. It's very humbling. It doesn't matter how smart you are, what school you went to, or how successful you were. Man, I mean being a parent is an equalizer. It will humble you. Especially if you haven't slept in a while. So those are a couple of things I'd say about being a, being a parent and having a little girl. It's the best and it's the hardest. All right, that brings this episode to a close. As I mentioned, I'll be leaving those informational links in the description for what you can do to help be part of the anti-Asian hate movement. I will be also leaving Jeff's LinkedIn and Twitter handles in the description along with a link tree, which brings you to a lot more websites and some of those articles that he has written and videos and, and lots of good information there. And of course, if you'd like to connect with the podcast here, our website is in the description, which includes the Instagram, Facebook, LinkedIn. And of course, if you'd like to support us, that information is there as well. And if you'd like to be a guest, I'd love to have you on the show. I always love hearing new stories. So the email is right there in the description as well. So just send me something about yourself. So thank you so much, Jeff, for spending time with me today. And to my listeners for taking the time out of your day to hear a new story. Until next time. Bye. Bye, everyone.